Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. You know, Kristen, one of the, uh, I would say, most popular and one of my favorite podcasts we've done is, of course, What's the Scoop on Lady Poop? Ah, yes, the poop episode. The poop episode. And today we're going to talk about baby poop. Yes, well, more more the collection and disposal of baby poop. Not necessarily digging into the diaper to see what's there. <laughs> very true, very true. But Thank I still wanted goodness. to make the connection. Because uh, today we're going to talk about all of the options that new mothers have. Uh, and fathers, sorry, I didn't mean to be so email-centric Come there. Come on, Molly. Jeez. And so you bring home your new bundle of joy. And pretty soon, as, as soon as you bring them home, there's going to be some choices to make. Yeah, the question is to diaper or not to diaper, because I don't know if everyone out there knows it, because uh, it seems like the natural course of events that you would bring baby home and wrap baby up in a diaper, and, you know, three years later, hopefully those diapers will come off and you start potty training. But you do have an option to not diaper baby at all, and that is through a technique called elimination communication. Right. And, you know, I think that it will sound very strange to our American ears because the idea of babies running around without diapers is just so contrary to what we know. But it is a very common thing around the world, mostly in Asia and Africa, where diapers are unaffordable and where the children tend to be with the mothers much more often than they might be here and in the West when the mothers are going to work. In fact, about half of the world's children never wear diapers and are fully toilet trained by the time they're a year old. All right. So when I heard of this, it's sort of like, you know, the kid kid can't talk. How are we going to communicate from child to parent that it is time to go to the bathroom? Well, first of all, babies kind of poop on a schedule, it seems like. They poop and pee at certain certain times. Um, for instance, a lot, of, a lot of them will go minutes after waking up or eating, not surprisingly. Uh, and some elimination communication practitioners say that you end up developing a feel you for when your child needs to go you actually become tuned in to your baby's bowels yeah it's like a second sense there was one uh we were looking at diaperfreebaby.com and one uh 
bullet point there was that you'll just, it's like your own lap will feel warm even though your baby is dry. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, you got to get that baby ready to go. And you develop these verbal cues. It's sort of like Pavlov and his dogs that will get the baby to sort of poop and pee on command around these certain times. Well, it's sort of, you know, if you recognize your baby needs to go after learning these cues, then you're going to say, okay, Baby, I'm going to position you. The baby might not know what a toilet is yet. So you position the baby and then, yeah, you give it the command that it is in a safe place to go. Yeah. And a lot of times those commands will be, for instance, if the baby needs to go number one, you would do something like. I really hope that we didn't make all of our listeners pee themselves right now, Molly. That was my number one goal with this podcast is that if you hold your baby up, your uh, your baby who's practicing elimination communication if, if it, at that moment, did it work? Yeah. Or is are we totally throwing some schedules off? <laughs> I hope not. Um, but experts say that the best time to start this infant potty training is before the baby is six months old. And after that, it's still possible, but th- the kid will be used to wearing diapers and it's going to have a harder time learning new habits. Kind of like when, you know, you're learning a foreign language. Experts say that it's best to start as young as possible when your brain is still so malleable and plastic and just absorbs new information more easily. So if you had to pick between teaching your kid a foreign language or teaching it how to be toilet trained years ahead of schedule, which which would you pick, Kristen? I would toilet train my child in a foreign language and knock out two birds with one stone. Very clever. I can't can't wait till you're a mother. Now, as you may imagine, not everyone is on board with elimination communication. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics says that babies really can't fully control bladder and bowel movements until they're about 18 months old. That's the age they say you should start toilet training and that anything before that is just sort of like a bonus. It may not stick. It may, you know, just be a waste of time for the parents. However, Elizabeth Paris, who's a spokesperson for diaperfreebaby.org, says that infants can initiate bowel movements on cue as young as three to four months. And this has been, the elimination communication has been a growing thing, particularly in the United States, in large part, I'd say, due to the environmental impact of diapers. And that's why we titled this podcast, To Diaper or Not to Diaper, because uh, a lot of, you know, green-minded parents, once they have their child, they're wondering, you know, do I go, do I go with disposable diapers, obviously, which will end up in landfills, or do I go with cloth diapers where, you know, it's kind of messy and you, you have to wash them and, you know, and then you have brown stains on cloth, ew, all that stuff. And then you can just eliminate all of it by just getting your, your child to, to poop or pee on command. Now, there was a pretty interesting article we were reading in Slate that was a criticism of this method because the success of elimination communication involves basically being able to read your baby's mind and to interpret every single signal that they uh, give out. So that that requires basically 24 hours a day with your baby. And, uh, you know, the, this article was sort of going into the fact that the whole reason we had diapers was to give women, you know, a chance to work if they wanted to, to give women some time so that they didn't have to devote their entire life to the baby. And uh, the author of that piece was sort of arguing that this would set women back in terms of the amount of parenting that they would have to do. Now, that's just a whole other argument on its own in terms of how much time should you spend with a baby. But if you're already spending the time with the baby, maybe elimination communication is something you should try. There are some daycares that won't accept children 
who are uh, practicing elimination communication with their parents. But I think we should also point out, because I'm I'm sure that uh, parents out there listening would point this out to us if we don't, um, there are kind of different scales of elimination communication that parents can practice. For instance, you can have the more full-time EC, elimination communication, uh, if you want to, where that's more of what the slate writer is talking about, kind of the full-time staying in tuned and the, the baby's never going to wear a diaper and it's it's far more intensive or you can do more of a part-time ec where parents will practice elimination communication to whatever extent they feel capable to accommodate and a lot of times these elimination communication websites will point out that it's you know it's if you put a diaper on a baby it's not going to say if you're on a road trip or you know you're at some kind of event where it would be really bad if uh if the baby, you know, had to poop, there might not be a place for it to go. Um, if you do that, it's not going to reverse all of the EC training the baby has has gone through. So you can do more of a part-time or you can even do occasional EC. But obviously the most effective form of it will, would probably be the full-time. Now, it's also worth noting that in countries where it is really popular, the Slate piece points out that essentially, you know, there are places in China where when the baby indicates it has to go, you can sort of just take it over to a bush mm-hmm. and have the baby do its business. Yeah, and the babies will actually be wearing split pants, split pants in the in the back, so that they already have a little, a little, little opening. Yeah. yeah. So that's just something to consider is, you know, if you're going to do this, will you always be in the position to get to a toilet? Because I would say in this country we're a little, little less comfortable with just someone running over to a bush and doing their business. Right, because it just doesn't seem sanitary, doesn't seem good for... The baby, but we really didn't run across any health advocates saying that this would be inherently bad or unhealthy for a child. It just takes a lot more work. But now, Molly, I think that we need to go to the other side of the argument, which is obviously diapers. Diapers. And we've got a subset within this of cloth versus disposable, which you already alluded to. When you find out you're having a baby, many writers have said this is the most important environmental decision you can make because of all the studies that have been done about disposable diapers ending up in landfills. Uh, but, you know, the jury, I would say, still kind of out. People have kind of hedged their bets over the years in terms of whether all the energy that's expended on cloth diapers, all the way from cotton production to washing them, whether that can really counteract the amount of energy that goes into a disposable diaper. Well, I think that this argument really was ramped up uh, a couple years ago when the New York Times reported that diapers fill landfills at a rate of $22 billion a year and cost families up to $3,000 per child. And that set of stats was widely circulated around that time and, and kind of kick-started this whole argument. And I think that we should back up for a second and note that up until the 19th century, American mothers wrapped their babies in swaddling, and then they began putting infants in cloth diapers or pads that gave the, the babies a greater range of movement and ensured that they didn't have to be held all the time, because if a baby's swaddled, I mean, it's just kind of like a little little tiny mummy in there. And then Pampers began began marketing the first disposable diaper in 1961. But these were not the super-duper, you know, disposable underoos that we might see today. The early versions were leaky and bulky and were pretty inferior to cloth diapers. But as the technology, the diaper technology, yes, there is diaper technology, believe it or not, as the diaper technology has improved over the years... 
On the flip side of that, there have been, you know, more environmental questions of what's going into these diapers, where are they ending up? And really, you know, should we just stick with the, you know, the tried and true cloth? Yeah, you know, as early as 1971, there was this highway cleanup campaign that the Pennsylvania Boy Scouts did, and they reported that diapers were the largest source of litter. And so that was sort of the first uh, hint back in the 70s that this was not the most environmentally friendly way to do things. They were finding feces in the sanitary landfills, in the water systems. Uh, And as early as 1979, an Oregon senator authored a bill trying to ban the sale of disposables. And since then, there's sort of been this back and forth between the diaper industry and environmental activists about the environmental health of these diapers. Now, the reason why disposable diapers are good at what they do in terms of absorbing waste products is largely due to a super absorbent chemical gel, which is sodium polyacrylate. Now, studies have been done on this chemical, and it has been linked to allergic reactions, toxic shock syndrome, and also may have the potential to harm your household pets if they start chewing up your baby's diapers. So that sounds terrible, of course. But of course, with uh, with every study finding, there is yet another study to counteract all that because large companies like Procter & Gamble that are marketing all of these diapers are not going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, they cause toxic, toxic shock. No, no, no. They, they're going to go back and they're going to look at it again. So there have been some conflicting findings. For instance, Molly and I found an article in Wired that reported on the uh, follow-up to that toxic shock allergic reaction information. And an environmental scientist with Procter & Gamble later went back and and studied the sodium polyacrylate a little closer and, and found that there was no connection between toxic shock and outerwear, for instance, like the, the, you know, the babies are wearing it on the outside because the same chemical was removed from tampons in 1985 because of that link to toxic shock syndrome, which is a bacteria caused illness. But there have been no studies indicating that materials containing the chemical that are worn on the outside of the body, including, you know, feminine napkins and all of that might cause any kind of health problem. Now, here's one study that the diaper industry has not been able to explain away yet, and that is when it comes to baby boys and diapers. Uh, in this, uh, there's an article in October 2000 in the issue of Disease in Childhood. And this article, they found that the scrotal skin temperatures of boys were significantly higher when they wore disposable diapers than when they wore cloth diapers. And so uh, they were saying that prolonged exposure of these disposable diapers as infants could at some point uh, lead to the decline of sperm production among adult males. Procter & Gamble has done their own study and found that there was a slight increase, but not as much as the German researchers found. And so I think whenever you're reading any of these studies about diapers, you've got to look at who's putting them out. There was one big study in 1990 when Procter & Gamble commissioned a study by Arthur D. Little a consulting firm about uh, the cost of laundering a cloth diaper over its lifetime. And they found that it was going to take six times the amount of water over the lifetime than it would take to make one single-use diaper. So they were able to come out in the 90s and say, oh, no, you know, all that washing is just as bad for the environment. But then people criticize and say, well, you're not using the latest washing machine specs or you're not using the correct cost of a diaper. So it's 
It's a lot of back and forth. Yeah, and you know, like you pointed out, cloth diapers are not entirely off the hook. Also, in terms of these uh, industrial chemicals that are being used, for instance, in an article from HowStuffWorks.com points out that with advances in cloth diapers, there are still some polymer chemicals that are showing up in more newfangled kinds of cloth diapers, including vinyl, polyester, and water repellent finishes. And in addition, if you are laundering your cloth diapers, you might end up using things like chlorine bleach, which could, which could be irritating to a baby's skin as well. And, you know, they're saying that if you use a laundry service to do that as well, you may not be able to keep as close eye on how they're washing your diapers. Now, let's go into some pros and cons because there are a few. They're saying that cloth diapers and no diapers might prevent diaper rash better than wearing a disposable diaper might. They're also saying that if you have a cloth diaper, it's possible that your baby will want to toilet train earlier because when uh, he or she wets himself, it's they feel the wet. Whereas if it's in a disposable diaper, all that's being sucked up. They aren't as conscious of the fact that they are urinating and they may not uh, go for the toilet training idea quite as quite as easily. Yeah, and I mean, I think that some critics also point to the fact that uh, companies have marketed disposable diapers that are more like disposable underwear for toddlers, although a lot of times that's to prevent things like bedwetting and that transitional phase between diapering and potty training. But, you know, at the end of the day, obviously these companies, you know, they want to probably want to make a buck. So they, they keep coming out with, uh, with more and supposedly better products. But, uh, we, we went to the new parents guide online and their consensus was that, you know, it's really, up to the parent and also up to the baby's needs, whether or not it has sensitive skin and talk to your doctor. If you're concerned about whether or not you should diaper in terms of the environmental impact, um, we found an article from the green lantern column on slate that analyzes the environmental impact of different products. And he was looking at the environmental uh, impact of, you know, cloth diapers versus disposable diapers. And it's really, uh, if you compare, the, the washing, like you pointed out in the study earlier, Molly, and then the production that goes, production and waste that goes into the disposable diapers. And the environmental difference is kind of negligible. It's kind of negligible. And he kind of goes into the same issue we were talking about earlier in terms of elimination communication, that it may just come down to time. If your time is money, then disposables are more convenient. So no one ever wants to have to make a choice of, you know, convenience in their own life versus what's good for the planet. But we all do that every day, whether we, you know, like it or not. So they're saying, you know, if you are a new parent, it's a stressful time. Perhaps, you know, if a disposable is what will save your sanity, that might be the way to go. But I did like one way that he closed out this article, Kristen, which is how, you know, we have this diaper debate. It leads to a lot of environmental uh, back and forth about what's the best thing for a new parent to do. And he said that it's curious how people feel so guilty about using Huggies, but not about all the fossil fuels that went into making and transporting their brand new bouncers, swings and diaper pails. And he pointed out, you know, that secondhand baby gifts of that sort are often frowned upon, Mm -hmm. that you always want the newest and the best thing for your baby. And that maybe if we looked at babies a little bit more holistically in terms of the waste they produce and use secondhand things, then maybe the disposable diaper choice wouldn't be the worst thing that you could do. Right. And I'm sure that, you know, there are going to be parents on all three sides of this diapering and not diapering argument. And the thing is, it seems like from our research, each of those 
different arguments are completely fine and valid as long as, you know, it takes into account the baby's needs and the parent's time and doctor recommendations and all of that kind of like conversations that we've had about breastfeeding and other issues that are very important that a lot of parents feel very strongly about. But it does seem like another one of those fields where it's not really a black and white right or wrong situation. Um, but, but Molly, I think that it would be nice to maybe in this discussion, instead of just on a, on a debate or an argument, let's, let's tell a little story, a little bit of a diaper uh, story, if you will. And can we praise a female at the same time? Because if we're not doing that, I don't know if I want to do it. Yeah, no, let's praise a female inventor. Okay. Let's talk about old Marion Donovan. Yeah, she's really the reason why we're having this conversation to begin with, because Marion Donovan was the inventor of disposable diapers. Yes, did not get a lot of credit for it. But basically, she uh, spent a lot of her childhood hanging around a manufacturing plant run by her father and uncle. And so she learned a lot about how to uh, be, you know, crafty with what she had laying around. And mm-hmm. when she became a mother, that helped her a lot. Yeah, she became kind of frustrated at the repetition of you know, changing her youngest child's dirty nappies, cloth nappies, and bed sheets and clothing. And Marion Donovan just got tired one day, and she said to herself, she said, Marion, you and I, we together are going to craft a disposable diaper. And she used a shower curtain. I love this because she was trying to think of something, you know, that would be absorbent that, you know, you you wouldn't have lots of, lots of leaks. The, the waste wouldn't just seep right through like it would, um, like it might on cloth diapers. Although I don't, you know, it's not like they're paper towels or anything like that. I'm not trying to point that out. Um, but yeah, she came up with this waterproof diaper cover. Now there were already rubber baby pants on the market. But they cause diaper rash. They're very pinching. And so what she does is she just perfects the invention over and over again. She gets rid of the safety pins, which can stab a baby uh, if you're clumsy like me. And she put the snap fasteners in place that would soon become those sticky, convenient stickers on diapers. And uh, she called her cover the boater because she said, I thought it looked like a boat. What inspiration. Um, but the boater was a huge success from the time that it debuted at Saks Fifth Avenue in 1949. So obviously disposable diapers, not really for the masses at first. Um, but then she received a patent in 1951 and then sold the rights to the Kiko Corporation. And then we snowballed into today's vast diapering products from all sorts of manufacturers and companies. Yeah, she went from just having a diaper cover to figuring out what what she could put into that cover, what kind of paper absorbency she could put in there to make a wholly functioning unit, the disposable diaper. She sold that to Pampers, and they were on the market in 1961. So there's your history lesson, women's history lesson for today. And of course, as always, if you have any comments or perspectives on diapering, Molly and I would love to hear about them because, you know, Molly and I aren't exactly speaking from firsthand experience, although I have changed a lot of diapers in my time. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely winging it here, but we want to hear from your parents out there. What do you think? Do you care? Is it a big deal? Is time important? Any elimination communication practitioners out there? Let us know your thoughts. Our address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And in the meantime, Molly, why don't we read a few listener mails? 
Okay, I'm going to, I have two here because they're talking about the same thing. One is from Kim and one is from Steven. And it's about our political quotas episode. Uh, both of these emails relate to the situation in New Zealand. So let's start first with Kim. She writes, Our country was the first in the world to enable women to vote, and perhaps it is this groundbreaking achievement that has made women feel just as entitled to positions in our governmental system as men. In 1999, Helen Clark became the first elected female prime minister of our country and only lost her position when her party lost the 2008 election. After the election novelty of our first female prime minister wore off, no one saw her as fighting for women's issues. She was simply a brilliant leader, improving the lives of those on welfare, increasing spending on healthcare and education. She was just a politician, and people loved or hated her or didn't care based on her party's policies and not because of her gender. Now and then, a small debate would start in the media about why she didn't have children or about the role of her husband, but she never seemed to let it get to her, handling it all with poise and dignity. She was labeled by Forbes the 20th most powerful woman in the world in 2006 while still in office, and now she is the administrator of the United Nations Development Program. So that is a little bit about Helen Clark, and Stephen sort of made the same point that uh, New Zealand is the only country in the world in which all the highest offices in the land have been occupied simultaneously by women. Between March 2005 and August 2006, the following women held the following positions. Queen Elizabeth II, Governor General Dame Sylvia Cartwright, Prime Minister Helen Clark, Speaker of the House of Representatives Margaret Wilson, Chief Justice Dame Cyan Elias. All right, well, I've got one here from Brenda, and this is on our podcast about whether there's a female equivalent to the word bachelor. She says, first, I want to say that I'm a 42-year-old, single, never married, child-free woman with a great job, a comfortable lifestyle, and a truckload of amazing friends. I've been in my share of relationships and can honestly say that at this point in my life, I'm the happiest I've ever been. Unlike most women my age who are saddled with children and a husband or who are single, divorced, and miserable, I have managed to buck the system and live the life I want with no regrets. I feel fortunate to have had the choices and the independence to design my own life, regardless of the societal pressures that are out there to pair up and settle down. Remember, you don't need anything to be happy, but you need something to be unhappy. Wise words, Brenda. Now, she says, my ideas for a female equivalent to the word bachelor are indie femme, which is a play on words, independent and female, and or freedom. And I'm not exactly sure whether she, she would want to be like freedom or free. Anyway, freedom, which is a play on the word freedom, O-M, ending with an O-M, but with the D-A-M at the end as in madam. So freedom. I like it. Creative choices, Brenda. Thank you. Keep sending those our way. Um, if you want to post them on our Facebook fan page, go over there and like us and post your thoughts on our site over there. And you can also follow me and Molly on Twitter. We are at Mom Stuff Podcast. If you want to uh, join us in the the, the Twitterverse. Um, and then finally, we have a blog which you can check out during the week, and it's stuff Mom never told you. And you can find it at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. 
not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 